Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. Welcome back, everyone, to the Grad School Femme Touring Podcast. This is Dr. Yvette, and today I have another wonderful guest with us who's going to be talking to us all about managing or navigating relationships with advisors and committee members. It's a really important topic. Um, our guest today is Dr. Gloria J. Santos Acevedo, who uses pronouns she, they, and graduated from a PhD in psychology from Universidad Autónoma de Nuevo León in 2014, but couldn't find an any open doors in academia afterwards. And so that has led to her now holding many titles. Uh, she is a professor of education at an online university, an anti-racist educator, an activist for women's rights, a certified sex counselor, an organic percussionist, and a flamenco dancer. I love it. Oh my gosh. Uh, they also host a punk feminist podcast and discuss the latest findings and papers on gender and sexuality. Yes. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. Um, yeah, that's my story. Um, uh, like when you when you tell it instead of I, uh, like me saying everything about myself, it it sounds more real. Porque <laughs> <laughs> sí, I'm like that's right. That's like I, I like, love your bio. <laughs> like it's like oh my god, I I really did all that. See, <laughs> I know that is. <laughs> so let, tell us a little bit more about about you doing that. I would love for you to tell our listeners who who maybe don't know who you are or are trying to get to know you more. Can you tell us about your background, your backstory, and kind of what led you to becoming who you are today? <laughs> I think I have a story of like switching my field of interest every certain time. Nice. Because I started, first of all, when I uh, started my undergraduate studies, I wanted to go into um, physics. Oh. Industrial physics and engineering. Yeah. But but something happened, like in my very first semester of physics, there was this big event with researchers in the physics field. And I got in there and um, the people were so boring and so sad. And so <laughs> and it, was main, it was mainly men and very mm -hmm. white or widened men. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about well the research, but they didn't sound like passionate about it. So I'm like, maybe this is not for me. <laughs> so in that like in that same semester, I went to another event with um, people in the humanities area, mm -hmm. and it was a, a linguistics event, mm. and they were mostly moms mostly Latina moms talking about their babies. 
What? And how the babies learn language. Oh, not, not what I expected. Yeah. And then, and I'm like, this is fascinating. You know, it was just moms talking about how their babies acquired their second language. Oh. And it was like, and, and there were many, like many very interesting research subjects, but all of them were about language and learning. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the people like, most of the researchers were women who were paying attention to those details. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, maybe I need to change my major. So I switched to linguistics and language. Uh, the program is called uh, Licenciatura en Letras Españolas. Ah, yeah. It's all about literature and language. And I wanted to go into linguistics originally. So... I graduated from my BA in well, in 2004, and then um, I wanted to do um, I wanted to do the same thing as those women that I had seen. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go into linguistics, and I wanted to also study about um, you know bilingual people and culture and code switching. And all of that was very interesting to me, but I couldn't afford a um, graduate program in linguistics because the the one I knew was one in Puebla and it was Mm -hmm. a private university in La Universidad de Los Angeles, Puebla. And was this for a a doctoral program? Was it for a PhD? A a master's degree program. A master's degree. a private university and I could not afford it and I was telling my family like that I wanted to keep studying but um well we couldn't afford a private university like well I had gone to a private university for my BA but that because I had a scholarship right because my my dad was a professor of mathematics which is probably why I wanted to get into physics <laughs> they're <laughs> they're they're interrelated <laughs> Yeah, but then the story goes full circle. Let me uh, uh-huh. explain that how it goes. So, um, well, we couldn't afford a, a I, I couldn't afford to move to Puebla. Mm. So my mom is like, well, look for a scholarship. Find, uh, find uh, a program that you are into and um, find something closer to home. And so I was looking for something similar to what I wanted and that didn't and that was funded by the CONACYT. CONACYT is the institution that um, well is the Comisión Nacional de Ciencia y Tecnología. So they are the ones who fund uh, the scholarships and uh, graduate programs and researchers and uh, and so in that process, I found this research paper on emotional argumentation. Mm. And this was by two, um, two researchers in the Faculty of Psychology in Ravalion, in my same state. So if I uh. wanted to study with them, I didn't have to move. So it was a very interesting work about how, um, well, they studied discussion forums. Um, in online classes and emotional content in it. Oh, that was they, back in they like, studied online classes? 
now it's yeah, like that the norm, back, but this was like free. That was back in 2003. Yeah. No, and, and they were like, how do people uh, discuss and uh, include emotion in their discussion? Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting. And um, they were like, I want to meet these people and I want to study with them. So like my love story with my committee was like from the moment I read their papers. <laughs> so I applied and and when I applied, this was not um the program was not funded by the Conocy. So I I oh. my first term I didn't have a scholarship, but they were oh. in the process of getting it. Mm -hmm. So I they were I in the process of the, getting Conesi, you're saying? Yes, yes. Oh. They were there's, there's something called a padron where mm -hmm. the, uh the programs are registered. And if they uh, if they have certain requirements, um, they can get fund. Mm, the school gets yeah. funding from from the Conacyt, so that you can be also. So they were doing um, that process, yeah. Yeah. So they were mm. in that process when I first joined, and um, as I said, I I came from my language and literature background, and it was psychology. I was not a psychologist. <laughs> I knew nothing. I, I, I mean, I, I knew very little about psychology. I knew a lot about language. Yeah. But because they were doing uh, this discourse analysis for their um, for their research in emotional argumentation, they were basically studying language. Um, it's like I fit right in into their. That's great. So um, they interviewed me. Um, they saw like that I was, that I had the interest and the curiosity and that I already had like a um, research idea. It wasn't even like a, like a research project. Um, I know that, that a lot of programs require you to have a, a, a project first and like yeah. already have a research objective before you join. But all I had was an idea you know, and, and an interest. So they welcomed me in. And um, with time, we got the funding from the Conacyt. And here's where it got interesting. Like one of the requirements for them to get funding was that the student that they accepted into the program had to graduate. So there's like a, a percentage of, of people that need to graduate from the program if they want to keep funding. Yeah. And, it, and we were like just only four or five students at the time. So they were really careful about who they accepted. They wanted to make sure they finished. accepted yeah. needed to complete the program. So that's where the relationship gets interesting because um, they have a commitment to making you graduate. Wow. But, you all, but they also have to see that you that you want to do it. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I love how, um, did you describe it as your love story with your committee? Yeah, my love story. <laughs> I've also never heard someone say it like that. <laughs> oh, but also because my um, my master's advisor mm -hmm. was like, these two people were married. Mm -hmm. So, Connie Concepcion Rodriguez was my advisor for my master's degree. And then her husband 
Dr. Víctor Padilla. Um, oh my God, I just called Connie Connie, Dr. Concepcion. <laughs> and then when I talk about my husband, I call her, uh, I call him my doctor. So, but you know what? You yeah, got yourself. Yeah, yeah. That is so important. Yeah, I got myself. Yeah. No. So, Dr. Concepcion Rodriguez Nieto was my advisor um, for my master's degree. And then for my doctorate, um, her husband, Dr. Victor Padilla, was um, also my advisor. So they had a love story uh, already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So, um, I mean, I, I also want to hear like other parts of, of your story and of of all the other things that you do, but I also think this is a good transition to talking about advisors and committee members. And maybe if you're okay with that, we can get back to talking about kind of what you do now after we talk about committee members and advisors, because it's it's tricky, it's complicated uh, to develop and maintain these relationships. And I've heard a lot of horror stories, just to be honest with you, of people who end up working with folks who on paper seem really great, but then when you meet them, maybe are not very supportive or they're cold or they're unavailable or just something happens. And so I'm curious from your perspective, since you have a background in psychology, since it sounds like you had a good working relationship with your advisors and you yourself are, you know, a professora, um, and an educator, like from your perspective, I would love to hear kind of your thoughts on navigating these relationships. Yeah, I think um, when when there are problems, it's because um, there was like an advisor was assigned to you instead of you choosing your advisor. Yeah, you start the program, people start the program without knowing uh, whose research they are following. Right, or sometimes yeah. like people will apply to grad school and they'll list three people. They'll say, oh, I wanna work with this person or this person, this person. And then they get in and they don't know who they're gonna work with. Uh, and like you said, either someone gets assigned to them or they decide, but then they don't know that person very well. So I'm sorry, I'll, <laughs> I'll keep going. Yeah, that, and also uh, another thing that happens and it, it happened to me is that you, inherit problems that are not yours. Mm. If your advisor has a problem or like a conflict with another researcher or someone oh else in your goodness. same committee, that problem is not yours, but you have it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if your advisor doesn't get along with one of your committee members, that happens too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so what, what do you do to, to manage that? Well, you, you need to know like, and I, I wrote this question for like what we need to think about in this in that case of conflict. Like, is the conflict because of what their work is about, or because of, of something personal or emotional? Mm. So we need to know like who does the committee um, like? Do they side each other? Who do they side? Who responds to their work? How do they respond? Because the, those are also clues to how we're going to be questioned on our mm -hmm. own work. Like the way our advisors are questioned is the way our mm -hmm. revisers will question us too. 
Right. So we need to know, like, what are the main disagreements, like, when it comes to their work, you know? And also, um, we need to remember that scientists, even though we claim to do science, we're human. And, and a lot of the responses are emotional. Thank you for bringing so, that up. It's yeah, so true. So, I think a lot of people forget that. Yeah. And so, like, these agreements are part of the process in science. Like, it's, like it's very normal to these. You have to disagree to advance in the field. But the way some disagreements happen, they may be emotionally taxing. Mm -hmm. Especially if we're not used to, um, like, in our culture, in Latina culture, it is very difficult to disagree with people. Yeah. We are, like, even in my own research, what I found out is that Critical discourse is difficult for us because we are very polite. And so this politeness is like a barrier to, um, to criti criticism and to like seriously point at something and say, hey, I have these questions about your work or um, I don't think uh, what you're doing is right or um, this part of your work uh, is problematic because of these reasons. So we don't have like the training, the linguistic yeah. training to talk about that. Um, I mean, it. We, you're saying for some of us, we come from that culture of, like you said, politeness. Uh, some would even say like people pleasing, that fear of like el que dirán, like, the, what are people going to think about me if I if I provide this criticism? What can we do to kind of counter that and and still kind of in some cases advocate for ourselves for our work without um, without negatively impacting the relationship? That's that's the hard part. <laughs> it is going to impact your relationships anyway yeah. because. Um, but we need to start building um, the spaces that are open to discussion. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to be comfortable with people disagreeing with our story. And also we need to learn how to give feedback yeah. in ways that are uh, respectful of mm -hmm. the person, but still critical of their work. Yeah. You know, like, I, I was gonna say, um learning how to give feedback is actually a skill that not a lot of us actually learn. Like we see how other people give us feedback and sometimes feedback is just all negative. It's not always positive. And um, yeah, you learn from, from what you receive. And <laughs> I feel like there needs to be a professional development part of graduate school where, where we kind of talk about these things, about relationships, about feedback, about criticism. Another thing that I know comes up a lot when it comes to <clears throat> relationships with advisors is sometimes people are assigned an advisor and then they realize, oh no, they no longer want to work with this person. Maybe, maybe it's personal, like they just, they don't get along or sometimes it's not personal. Sometimes it's about the research and they, they realize that they, they want to take their work in another direction and work with someone else or maybe even change departments completely. So 
Um, what kind of input would you give to someone who is in the position of realizing, I think I want to switch advisors and I don't want to burn bridges, ruin any relationships. I still want to, you know, be in good standing with this person. Well, um, I did see uh, people change uh, department or change advisors. And um, it is normal. It is like a very valid process to change your advisor because your work is changing. You're, uh, you're learning uh, about, you're in a learning process. And the more you learn about something, you may find out that the person that is advising you is no longer uh, qualified yeah. for that specific subject. And it, it's very uh, normal and very valid to like to change your mind. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because sometimes people wait a while before they even uh, have that conversation with their advisor because they're afraid, because they don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. And um, I, I just, I'm glad that you are reminding the listeners that it is normal, that is part of the process sometimes for some folks. And, you know, I switched advisors when I was getting my PhD. It was not a comfortable process, but it happened and I was better off for it. So I think it's just reminding people it might not be the uh, most comfortable thing to do, but if it's in the, your best interest, then you should definitely pursue it. Yeah, I think also in the process, what may happen is that your subject just got more difficult mm. and you need help yeah. from people beside your advisor. So maybe uh, changing your advisor is one way to do it, but getting an external advisor is also another way. Like in my case, um, well, I got into um, metaphors and metaphor processing and um, my advisor was an expert in semantic networks, but he wasn't quite an expert in like linguistical, um, you know, in the very um, linguistic field, you know, yeah. and more, he was more in, in, in psychology and discourse analysis was just something he learned to do his research, but he wasn't an expert in, um, you know, in language and, uh, and linguistics, but he did have a relationship with another researcher um, in Buenos Aires, no, in Rio de la Plata, uh, in Argentina, and um, and he became my external advisor. This other advisor. Um, when you say he, external, I'm so sorry. I just want to clarify. When you say external advisor, do you mean this person was? All, like a co-advisor, as in both of them were your advisors for your dissertation? He was, he was invited into my committee. Like okay. I talked to my advisor and they invited him into my committee. And um, he was not exactly a co-advisor, but oh, um, okay. it was some someone we could, we could bounce ideas with. So an external committee member, maybe? Because <laughs> yeah. I might, for my... Um, dissertation and I know for a lot of people they have like an external person someone outside of the department or outside of the university from another university 
who comes in, like you said, to provide their expertise, but they're not the advisor. The main advisor is the person in your department. Was that the case in your for you? Yes, uh, that was the case. But also, uh -huh. like sometimes the structure seems very rigid, mm. and people forget that you can uh, you can break the structure. That if you find someone uh, that is doing your subject, but is in another university in another field, you can still contact them and ask them for advice, and um, and. Even if you're worried about how to pay someone, citing someone is already like an exchange. Right. So you yeah. promise to cite someone in your work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like you, you can negotiate how someone can help you, you know, like, or like just asking questions about this, about the subject. So yeah, you, you may have like an official advisor, but a lot of researchers are very willing to help about their own subject. You know, it's like if you're reading my work and you need help understanding my work, I'm going to offer my help for free. You know, yeah. that's part of my impact. I'm curious because I know you have a lot to say about this topic. What, um, you know, what prompted you to want to? come and talk about this subject in particular, because I feel like you could cover a lot of different topics just based on your background, your experience, what you do now. So what, what made you think, oh, I, I want to talk about, about advisors, uh, about relationships? I think part of it is that I had a very positive uh, experience Great. and a very clear relationship with my advisors, but also uh, like I can, I can see uh, people struggling with this conflict mm. like um also because of our like i did this in our own mexican culture you know mm. like i did my my work in mexico and people uh in the u.s or people are like in more uh anglo dominant yeah. spaces may not have this kind of relationship what do you mean by that? They may not have these kind of relationships, like positive relationships or <laughs> what kind of like, relationships? No, like positive and culturally informed relationships. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of um, cultural, what's the word? Um, choke, like, how do, how do you, like, yeah, culture shock. Especially, especially like, yeah, especially when your advisor um, is in a position of authority. Mm hmm and is it a, uh, maybe there are also uh, Latinx advisors, but they uh, are assimilated into yes. American, whiteness, American white academia. Mm -hmm. Oh my so, goodness, uh, that could be another episode. <laughs> yeah, that, that should be another subject in your... Um, if, and well, so I'm glad to hear this side of the story of like, you can have positive, productive um, relationships with advisors and committee members. Is there anything that if you could go back and do it again when you were getting uh, your master's or your, your doctoral degree, is there anything you would do differently? I would choose a different subject, yes. Oh, but <laughs> not your, not, you wouldn't change anything when it comes to your relationships with advisors? No. Like, oh, wow. but I, I would try to find a subject that is more closely related to their research uh, because that would have got me published 
uh, easier, easily, you know? That's like the strategy side of things that, because, that we don't know. Because right my, my subject was difficult for my advisors because oh, it was new to them. Yeah. So maybe it was challenging. It was exciting. It was uh, a learning process for all of us. But maybe if I had chosen a subject that was um, more related to theirs, um, we would have collaborated more and I would have more publications with them. Because what I have published, I published by myself without my advisor as a co-author. Mm -hmm. So I would have changed that. Okay. Um, and that's also an advice for people that who are just uh, starting. Find a find something that you're passionate about, but that someone else is doing, so that you can collaborate and publish together. Yeah, I, um, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that in STEM fields, one thing that I appreciate about folks that are in STEM, I myself am not, but I've worked with a lot of students who have um, pursued research in STEM fields, is just how highly collaborative it is and how it's part of the process for you to be an apprentice and work in a lab and work with other people and then be a co-author. And, um, and so that's part of the process that helps to to train, professionalize you, to get you published. Whereas in the humanities and some social sciences, it's less common for you to co-author something. It's not a requirement for you to co-author with your advisor. And I, I think that it's a great learning process to do it with someone who's already done it and to help to help you, to help you get more publications, to help you get more, uh, get your name out in the field. So yeah, I mean, if we can encourage that, if in an, any way possible, especially outside of STEM fields where that is already the norm. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the work that I did in my lab was a translation work for my advisors so that my advisors could connect with more researchers. So I helped my advisor publish. <laughs> Nice. In English. <laughs> but I didn't get any publications of my own out there. <laughs> well, it's okay because you can still publish now. <laughs> so yeah, I want to okay. hear more about, about you just because uh, I, I, I'm still thinking about just how, how interesting your bio is and everything that you do. And, and it, it, I just would love to, to hear more about what you do now and um, yeah, how you went from getting your PhD in psychology to now you're in education and you've got your podcast and you, you've got your, um, your activist work and your um, anti-racist work. So that's all great. And you're okay. a certified sex counselor. Like, come on now, those are all. <laughs> and I you dance and. Yeah, <laughs> as I said, I I you find the time out. for everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I branched out of education because I was starting into like uh, social learning and collaborative learning. And as I was doing that, I got into education for liberation and social justice and ethnic studies. Nice. And those interests were not like my, uh, my field, my academic field officially, but they were related. So I was moving like step by step outside of my work into this social justice work. If I didn't ask you about this, people would be frustrated because I think a lot of my listeners are interested precisely in that. 
in the social justice aspect of what you do. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yes, I had like I when I spoke to my advisor about my interest in social justice work, they were like, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and they were like, focus on something. You have too many interests. <laughs> And, and it, it's like they didn't believe that social justice work had like a like a deep enough background yeah. to like to be a field of study in itself. Yeah, it's it's legitimacy is often questioned, right? Yeah. Yes. So and also I think that my advisors as Mexican researchers, they were more um uh, interested validation. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I think they they, they were um, they wanted validation and from prestige. Uh, I'm it, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so if if they would have gone into that field, uh, that would have been a social cost for them that they weren't willing to pay. Mm. But I paid it. You know, like I did. Uh, I I'm distant from academia now. Uh, Officially, you know, I'm not, I'm not in a postdoc. I'm not publishing in uh, anymore. But I'm, um, but I, um, well, I got into this activism for women's rights. I'm a woman in Mexico. They kill Tanahos daily. So not doing it was not uh, like I couldn't not be in this. Yeah, I mean that's very so, real, femicidio, and like you're constantly like having to worry about your safety right yeah right and also what happened was that during my graduate studies uh, we were in the middle of uh, of the guerra contra las drogas de felipe calderon mm -hmm. and um i had a lot of uh, survival guilt even graduating because um like students were killed were yeah. murdered uh, in in the crossfire and um, yeah, I'm sorry. I have, I have to talk about this. Even, no, so. yeah, you you should. It's yeah. Important. So uh, I think part of my disinterest in academia also comes from graduating in the middle of a war that wasn't even acknowledged as a war. You know, because what do you call this? Whatever that Calderon was doing, you know, yeah. and it's not getting. It's not getting better, you know, it's not, it's just, but it's not as violent as it was back then, but. Um, I mean, I think you're so, speaking to the, the humanity uh, and sometimes the lack of it that can be seen in academic spaces. And you're talking about like Mexico, Mexico in particular, but like, it can be seen in um, academic institutions all over the world, just that that lack of humanity, the lack of like acknowledging what's going on in people's lives. Like I've seen that with just my own students having relatives pass away from COVID and professors just being completely unwilling to give them an extension or to acknowledge their humanity when it's like a life or death situation for them or a tragic situation for them. So I, I can... I feel it like I can empathize um, with some of what you're saying with like the reasons why you left 
um, I, you know, academia, I guess I would say, and now you're pursuing this, this different, but still, I would still consider it a scholarly route of like social justice and activism and uh, putting your work out there in hope, what seems like a, a more accessible way too, yeah. So um, one thing led to the next, you know, like being involved in social justice and women's rights. And then I got this opportunity to get into sex counseling because I was already, you know, getting informed about abortion rights yeah. and about, um, you know, and also the difficulties of relating to men mm. in the middle of like what's happening with femicide and, and gender violence. So I got into this program to certify myself as a sex counselor. Um, and I have this podcast when I talk about, um, you know, it's a very fun attitude because I, I got this attitude from being like in the, in the street marching and protesting and uh, with other people organizing. And like, it doesn't need to be perfect, but it's yeah. urgent. That, the, that we get this out there, you know? And part of what amazed me uh, when I was preparing my podcast episodes was that a lot of what I did, like when, when I was a teenager, as an activist, as a teenager, was already being considered uh, like in academia, in, in public papers. And I was like, okay, so, something that I didn't think was part of, uh, you know, that would be considered someday is now being like, what I'm doing on the street is being cited. Right. More than what I'm doing in this, in academia. I mean, that's the difference between theory and praxis, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, like you, you get papers where uh, your tweets are cited. And I think a lot of us are, are drawn to, to that work, the, the, the praxis, the applied work, the actually being able to go out and, and do work that has like direct application and helps people here and now and not having to wait a year, two years, peer reviewers. And, uh, and then you have, um, what is it, like paywalls and your work just doesn't get out there. It's, it, you hope that it makes a difference, but it's like, to whom? Who actually reads your work? Who actually gets your message? Yeah. So yeah, that was like, it was complicated to like, to learn exactly who, who does academia favor mm -hmm. and who should be represented in academia. And then it has been a process of like going back into, oh, maybe I belong here. Like I didn't know, uh, like, I, like I left for a while because I was uh, unsatisfied with this um, attitude of being super objective and um, disconnected from what is going around you until you see that there's people studying what you're doing outside of like officially what's considered academia. So what do you now, I'm curious, having said that, what do you anticipate will be like the, the future? What direction are you headed towards with your own, um, I don't even want to say career, but your own life? 
Because you say, well, you were not sure about academia, but now you're saying that like, your work, your like actual work out on the streets is being cited. Like, what do you anticipate for, for you? You know, what's going to come next? Well, I think um, my work is help, helping the people that are uh, like joining academia or all, and also the people who are on the street and being a bridge. Yeah, you know, because we're the same people, mm -hmm. and um, and maybe building more collaborations and um, like teaching people who are working on social justice how to document what they're doing. Nice. Yes. And also like um, creating awareness inside academia about um. Uh, like, you know, the issues that people are going through and there's um, emotional issues and mental health issues. And um, what you're doing in this podcast is like amazing work that is needed and that Thank nobody you. had, nobody had pointed uh, to it before, you know, like there's an academia culture that may cause culture shock mm -hmm. to the people who are not. Um, and hopefully the, with these types, like the, the conversation that we're having, the other episodes that we've had, we help to minimize that culture shock. We help to demystify the process yeah. and then in turn empower more people so that they can decide if they want to go to grad school, if they don't, and they make informed decisions that empower them to pursue whatever they want to do with their life within yeah, outside academia or a, a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I think that like the, the white centering in academia uh, is, is not only an American phenomenon. It also happens uh, in Mexico. It happens in Argentina. It white supremacy is then almost yeah, all over so, the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So even though like even though I had access to Mexican advisors, very um, brown Mexicans, mm -hmm. they're still widened in their thinking because mm. of this uh, relationship to academia. Yeah. Even Trying though to follow they the Western model, even, yeah. Even though they represent themselves uh, like proudly, you know, even though uh, even though they go internationally to represent themselves. And even if they have, uh, like, they have contact with other, with people from other nations, like indigenous people from other nations, even, even though that is happening, the mindset is still westernized. The model that we are following is still westernized. Right. And it is still uh, white centering. So even when that is happening, like, there's hope in the people that are, um, like in the younger generations, the younger generation come with uh, deeper questions that we need to be prepared to uh, to advise. Yes. So, Speaking of the the younger generation, you know, as I get ready to like wrap up the episode, I I usually always ask this of of any guests is. What advice would you have for the coming generations, the younger generations, you know, whoever is interested in um, 
they're interested in applying to grad school or they've just started grad school or they're just getting started with getting um, setting up their committee or like you they have this deep desire to merge social justice with kind of academic work like what kind of advice would you give to them to help them navigate this process and hopefully have you know develop some good relationships not all relationships will be great but you know hopefully develop some good relationships out of it first of all you need to um find what inspires you mm. and what interests you and then find the people whose work is related to what you find inspiring and the people are out there, you know, there are people doing the work that you want to do, connect with them. You're not competing against them. It's so funny. Sometimes I forget that there are so many good people out there because I've had my own fair share of toxicity in academia. Yeah. But then then I myself run into folks, you know, whether it's through the podcast or through meeting like a friend of a friend who are doing really good work, who are doing work that kind of inspires and motivates others. And so I appreciate you for that reminder. Now, if, if folks um, listen to this podcast and connected uh, with what you said and would like to stay in touch or connect with you in some way, shape or form, how can they reach you? Um, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter as HRH Gloria Santos. And um, my podcast, uh, you can listen to it on, it, I record it on Anchor. And I think it's spread to Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Right, all of the, all of the it, platforms, yeah, yeah. Yes. And it's called Sentir Rico. Sentir rico. I like that. Yes. <laughs> I love that. It's because it's like putting joy at the forefront and we don't do that enough. Yes. Like pleasure I, I and think, joy. Yeah. I think I trolled people with that uh, with that title because first of all, I didn't want to talk about like our rights to pleasure and to sentir rico. But then it's like my, some, some of my subjects started being like uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> But you know what, sentir rico can mean being like the pleasure side of it, but it can also mean feeling wealthy, <laughs> so like living living a yeah. rich life for her. So for all you know, you might be like, <laughs> yeah. But it's like if you listen to me, you may find pleasure, but also you will you will be made uncomfortable. <laughs> you will have a wealth of knowledge. You may feel uncomfortable. You may feel pleasure. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I will make sure to um, add them to my show notes. So you're, you're a link to your podcast and then you're, you said Instagram and Twitter, right? Yes. I'm okay. also, yeah, you can also find me on Facebook um, with my name, Gloria J. Santos. So great. Thank you so much for joining me in the Grad School Femme Drawing Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or email me your review at gradschoolfemtouring at gmail.com. You can also show your support by going to gradschoolfemtouring.com and joining my mailing list where you'll receive weekly tips, podcast and blog updates, as well as discounts for my digital downloads, online courses, and much more. One last thing. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Until next time.